Hello, it's Jack Tutor of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Robert Kogenvan, an artist based in Ireland, born in Australia, and according to his website, his work emphasises physicality, our embodied response to sound and its correspondence to location, air, weather and architecture. All of these are in play on Robert's new three album set, which encapsulates so much that I already love about Robert's work. It's called Beyond Enclosures, comes out via his recorded Fields imprint on September 17th. And again, to quote Robert, the three albums that comprise this set all at their heart concern air and the attendant interpermeability and fluidity of volumes. One thing that's always grabbed me about Robert's work is the palpability of airflow, the sense that you can feel the direction of airflow, how harmonics illuminate how air is bristling and quivering and pulsing. One of the records within this Beyond Enclosures set is based on a piece called Bronze Lands, And there are, in fact, two versions of this piece that exist. So one within that set, which was recorded in Sydney, and one which was released standalone just very recently, which was recorded at Cork Midsummer Festival. And both versions of this piece vary drastically due to the different conditions, the different pipe organ, the different time of day, the different air temperature, humidity, all of these things when you're working with something as delicate as air and illuminating it, how Robert does, lead to drastically different results. It was so nice to talk to Robert. We've been in touch on off for quite a few years now. Fabulous to get down to talking to him about these three excellent records. So as always, head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. If you're listening to this in the browser, by the way, you can grab it as a podcast if that's easier. And head over to recordedfields.net for more info on Robert's work and to pre-order this wonderful set, if you so please. Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening, as always. Hope you're all doing well. This is Robert Kagenvan on Crucial Listening. Robert, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So we're here to talk about your three important albums. Before we get to those, I'd like to talk about your new 3D set, which is coming out September 17th. It's called Beyond... 3CD in 3D. What did I say? 3D? 3D. It is indeed. It's actually four-dimensional, but we'll come into that later. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> and it's also on compact disc, three of them. It's called Beyond Enclosures. It's coming out via Recorded Fields, your imprint. So to begin with, could you give me a little introduction to each of these CDs and then also a bit about what unifies them as well as a single set? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the first CD is Bardo Long Form for Three Turntables, Pipe Organ and Piano. It was originally an installation that um, I made in 2011 when I was living in Cornwall. It consisted mainly of abusing some vinyl for a couple of days and recording a lot of little snippets of vinyl abuse and interspersing that with silence. It was an installation that was designed to run um, on infinite loop and never repeat. So I've since interspersed it with some pipe organ and um, piano, and it mainly works with overtones and sort of aleatoric textures from the turntables. Um, so there's five different layers, and the idea is that it creates this bardo state where you hold two contrasting opinions simultaneously from listening to it. You both expect things to stay the same and you expect things to change. So... Both can't be true, but in this piece they are. So through this suspension, you notice that you become okay with both, that things will suddenly arrive or they might suddenly leave or different layers might suddenly change and that it sort of has an internal logos that makes sense. The installation was originally shown in like Berlin, uh, New York, um, Ireland, and a 23-minute version, so a completely different version, was uh, released on long-form editions in 2020. So that's the first CD. It's 60 minutes long. The second CD is 45 minutes and or 43 minutes exactly. And it is from a different installation that was produced in 2019 as part of the Shape platform. I was one of the artists, um, 48 artists on that platform that year. Uh, the platform consists of 16 festivals that work together and share art artists for their different festivals um, includes club transmediala unsound ultra hong festival um, today's art and a bunch of other festivals across europe um, so this was commissioned by the ultra hong festival in budapest and shown in the mutu gallery there and um, i made recordings uh, for 10 days across um, poland in a tour just prior to arriving in budapest i used a similar technique to the 2016 album Climata, which was in 15 of James Terrell's Sky Spaces. So basically I used two tone generators and um, a small speaker to move air in and out of an architecture. And in this case, it was buildings that were incepted between 1961 and 1989, and we would now refer to them as post-communist. So it was working with this idea the translation of all that is solid will um, melt into air, but the correct translation of the original um, German sentence is that all that has stood and is standing will vaporise and that the standing bodies that they refer to, the architectures or the um, estates or the corporate entities that form um, the state as it exists. So essentially these architectures were an embodiment of that concept and it's using the air to draw what's outside into the building and it creates a um, phasing sound and it gives the impression that the sound's coming from everywhere. That was originally a six-channel um, installation that sort of filled the gallery and now it's um, five pieces on a CD. And there's a whole bunch of liner notes explaining more about that with the CD. And the third one is um, Bronze Lands or Tolta Kreua in Irish, um, recorded live at Sydney Festival in 2020. It was a performance on the Sydney Town Hall 64-foot Grand Pipe Organ, which was the largest when it was built in the 
18th or 19th century. Um, there's larger in the Southern Hemisphere now, but it's 20 metres high, longest pipe's 20 metres long, and it's 30 metres wide across the front of it, the Centennial Hall, which itself is 80 metres long. So quite an architectural experience again. Mm. Um, there was 300 people lying down, 300 people sitting upstairs, so something that's not likely to occur again in the near future and happened in January of last year just before the present situation all began where it is now. So coming out of a PA which had uh, 12 18-inch subwoofers was a piece that um, is in a different tuning to the pipe organ in the town hall. So it's essentially a piece for four hands where I'm playing an equal temperament um, pipe organ and then the different tuning, there's creating overtones and beating frequencies between the two. So I released the Irish premiere recently as an EP, uh, Creua, um live at Cockman Summer Festival, which was from 2018. This is the full concert of the 2020 festival uh, event and um, it's been nicely mastered by Anti Sakatis Ario and um, we've managed to capture a lot of the bass from the original performance. So you can imagine mm. the amount of air coming out of a 64-foot pipe and as well as all those subwoofers, it's quite a physical experience. So it's a single track, 50 minutes, and it's designed to be listened to as a concert. Um, it kind of goes through six different stages that take you somewhere and the structure is drawn on the um, movement of tin and copper across Europe during the Bronze Age at the very beginning, which was also a period where language um, started to change because there was the beginning of private property, because they were creating artefacts that could be traded for, like bronze was quite valued. It could also be used to build weapons. Weapons can be used to protect empires. Then you start to get stratified um, class-based society and like a whole bunch of things were changing around that period so um it seemed like an interesting thing and the um tin would often come from cornwall and it would travel to mycenae so the journey actually follows the reverse it goes from mycenae around italy up the coast across to the um, rhone then um up towards the seine out towards wren and then around the south of cornwall and ultimately ends in ireland so there's six um, passages in this 50-minute piece, which covers roughly a 4,000-kilometre journey. The Beyond Enclosures that it's referring to, the cover actually has a um, polar bear in an enclosure in the zoo in Sydney that was taken in um, the 1950s and has the audience of the Irish premiere of Tochakroa um, sitting in front of some speaker enclosures whilst themselves enclosed in um, the architecture of the cathedral. So there's sort of a series of meta-references to things that, you know, enclose us. And there's also perceptual systems, but equally it's about the architecture and um, how each of these pieces has an architectural element to it. And it's working with air, like mainly volumes of air and how they move and how they can interpermeate um, volumes of architecture in the same way. So it's kind of thinking outside the box in a fancy way of speaking. <laughs> so I want to ask a question about each of these specifically, because that was an awesome introduction to each of them and the main themes, I guess, that, that arise in each. So with Bardo, let's start there. You mentioned in the notes this being a spatial and temporal suspension, which yes. I think m maybe you touched on when you were describing it as to why that term that phrase is applicable here uh certainly rings true for the listening experience i think the temporal bit in particular um there's a lot of moments of very reduced 
sound where it's I don't want to say silent, but it kind of feels like it at the time. But you then no, reemerge it's silent. Into, yes. silent, yeah. But you reemerge into sound, and it's almost got this hypersleep quality to it, where you know there's a sort of ellipsis of time where you almost feel like you could have missed hours when you come back up again. But I'm intrigued from your side when you use a phrase like spatial and temporal suspension. What are you referring to there within the piece? Okay, so also trying to advance the idea of um, context and um, duration and location so that um, these different recordings like the piano, the pipe organ, the turntables are all made in different locations that they all have different sort of spatial vectors in terms of how the volumes of air were moving around in them when mm. it was recorded and that you're experiencing this shift in context so that yes there is the durational aspect that you know there's an accumulative experience that the things that you've heard before shape what you hear after so also the periods of silence there is some very quiet bits in there so you can't tell if it's silent or not uh -huh. so then you start listening to the silence as much as you're listening to the sound and if you're listening to it on speakers you'll hear the sound outside the room as well so then the room that you're sitting in or if you're sitting outside becomes a frame for how you hear what's happening around you so that you start to become increasingly attentive to where you are so the spatial suspension would be equally that you occupy the um, contextual location of the recording, sort of a non-space that exists in the digital or analog form, depending on how you're listening to it. And then you're in the real meat space of where you're sitting so that you're sort of shifting between both, but you're occupying both simultaneously. And then the temporal kind of flows out of that. The next one, Spectres. You mentioned there that it's employing a process that you used in Climata which yes. I loved. I'm wondering, and hopefully I've got the order of events right here, so Spectres was put together, and do you say in 2019? Yes. Yeah, awesome. So what was it that you took out the entire experience of doing Climata start to finish and ending up with a product that fed into how you approach Spectres? Like, did that bring with it a reevaluation of how you want to approach it or was it pretty much taking what you did for Climata and, and applying it to this this new context with Climata I was following a hypothesis and wasn't 100% sure that it would work but I was fairly sure that it should work and it wasn't <laughs> until we were halfway through driving across Europe and we actually <laughs> tested some of the recordings I think up to the seventh or eighth sky space we were in a kitchen um, where we were staying that night and like first thing in the morning i just grabbed a couple of speakers and popped a couple of recordings on and then there was the you know eureka moment of it works <laughs> but the sound yeah so, jammy, so yeah well the physics suggested that it should work <laughs> i tested it in one sky space and it functioned but i couldn't be 100 percent sure that the material that i was collecting would actually bear out into something interesting so like there's a saying i studied economics originally but that economics or economic analysis is like driving a car with the front window and the side windows blacked out and all you can see is out the back window and that's how you guess where you're driving so you're only <laughs> statistics yeah. that are six months old to try to determine the direction of the economy mm. similarly i only had the recordings that i'd already made fortunately they weren't film and i had to get it developed and there's the whole period of waiting for rushes and that sort of thing but i think with a film it's sorry it's a similar kind of process that you're following a directorial idea and hoping that it bears out with what you get on film yes. so um 
the base was all recorded fairly late in the day for Clamata. Um, with the approach to Spectres, I I felt that I could strengthen the process and um, go a bit harder at it, for want of a better phrase. So it's a lot denser, it's a lot thicker tone, mm. and um, that I wasn't just using art installations that were in cities, the country, like that were worth a million euros. It, these were a series of buildings that had links to historical significance from a particular period in a particular um, region, what people would refer to as um, Eastern Europe, although, you know, yeah, it's like Asia-Pacific. It's not a homogenous area. Right, yeah, of course. So trying to work out how something in 2019 would have any significance to what had happened 30 years earlier, I guess it was also that it was 30 years since the... um, end of communism officially when the Berlin Wall came down, but then the future didn't arrive in an evenly distributed state. So it happened at different points Mm. um, throughout the eastern areas of formerly um, Soviet-occupied Europe or what is now Europe, regardless of the EU. So, yeah, I was sort of pushing the idea a bit harder and I had a clearer idea of how best to employ them these acoustic resonators as rooms and that there's a much broader variety of architectural forms. So they weren't either all round, square or ovular, that they had a whole bunch of different attributes to them this time round. And all of the bass was recorded in the gallery at the end. So the bass is sort of draws together the pieces as they were made and, um, that was all done in a single take right at the end. So I was sort of pretty deep inside the process by then. And the mastering approach is quite different on this one as well. So, you know, hopefully it all bears out, but I thought that I've been particularly interested in some of the aporia within the all that is solid melts into air statement for quite some time. And um, my politics is interested in, some of the people who were theorizing around those kind of things. Um, I thought it was interesting to do the entire project without, with only referring to post-communist, but never referring to the thing uh-huh. because it's quite a numinous form. Like, you know, what exactly is that form? Did it actually exist? They are, there's the argument that communism oh, said the word is only fully <laughs> possible after completely saturated capitalism. So it could be argued that, it wasn't a full communist revolution because it hadn't gone through that complete limit of growth and Mm -hmm. the change from there. So, you know, theory and praxis are quite different things frequently. So, um, yeah, I was trying to draw out a different hypothesis and it had a far more social element to it and that it was about creating an arc that takes you through these different social constructs as well. There's a lot more internal architectural noise like i was recording in architectures within architectures perspectives so mm-hmm. you know that there's the two statements that it draws on that um eingespenst um uh, what was it there's a ghost across europe um and the, that it's a specter and that it translates best into specter so that there's a specter haunting europe and i feel that at this particular moment there's evidence of that in a variety of different ways that there is a big political change mm-hmm. and that all that has stood and is standing will vaporize and so that what would we do without these bodies and i guess that there is also within the architectures you can hear the bureaucracy and the um 
that constructed them and designed them that there's a lot of very busy noises in there they're hard to move through Uh the way that you need to take goods through public areas and that they create interjections of sound that there is a kind of bureaucracy that you can hear in there there's this utopian socialism that is at the heart of it like this monumentalist kind of element but that there's also how people occupy and inhabit these spaces and i guess that that's a lot more the focus so a different kind of philosophy but focused equally on habitation um, and what architecture can provide for us and then bronze lands so as you mentioned there was a version of this that was released live in cork the version that's included included beg your pardon in beyond enclosures is from sydney so i'm just digging into both presently at the moment from your end what are the differences either in terms of your experiences as a performer or in terms of the end item as something you listen to what are the 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 ways in which these two versions diverge that warranted them being released as as two separate versions of the same composition effectively yeah it's arguable that the piece is going to sound quite different every time it's performed because Mm -hmm. it's working a lot with architectural acoustics and overtones and the pushing the systems quite hard you get a lot of harmonics from the building the cathedral that we used in cork houses a 32 foot pipe organ um the organ sort of off to the side but we put the um, sound system on the altar and at the back of the room so we were moving the air backwards and forwards through the room from front to back so the audience was sitting inside of that and the recording itself ended up with quite a dense, thick tone, mm. um, which belies the eight-second reverb in the room. So, like, the architecture had a very strong role in there. Um, it was also recorded in summer, so midsummer, So it was quite warm in there. And um, air is a real factor in how sound moves. So, you know, pressure, humidity, um, temperature. Um, it sounds quite different in a cold room. So air sound can travel up to 10% faster between minus 40 and plus 40 degrees. And the humidity is going to a more humid room sound travels faster again. So the recording for Sydney festival, we'd spent 36 hours in there rehearsing and, you know, there's a hundred and 27 stops we used about 110 there's about 50 stops 53 i think on the st finbar's organ in cork um so very different registrations very different sounds um what's coming out of the pa is propagating into the room differently um sydney town hall is a long sort of rectangular room so the sound's propagating very evenly from the front of house so it again it's quite dry as well but um it was the middle of summer again in sydney when we performed the piece Um, i needed a registrant so she had an 11 page script pulling out the stops um it was very we developed that in two days she's grace chan is an absolute star like (laughs) let's say i want to start from this point at 23 minutes in and she would set it up so um it was a pretty intimidating couple of days, but it worked. But <laughs> to finish the Ill- illusion, during the rehearsal, we did a performance. There was like 10 people in there. Um, and when I sat down to begin the performance that evening, 80 tons of people had come into the room. There had been a storm. It was significantly hotter and significantly more humid. By the time I got to the third or fourth part of the piece, I had 
to actually play it significantly faster because the way the overtones were propagating into the room. Wow. When I was playing it at the speed I'd done in the afternoon, it just wasn't work. You could hear that, you know, it's like trying to shoot an arrow into, or like trying to like clay pigeon shooting. You're trying to hit a moving target. I could hear that the overtones weren't meeting, that the piece wasn't getting the particular effect that I was after. So I had to actually play a lot faster. And so the piece actually came out quite differently. So I've got to react to the conditions, of the volume of air in the room. There's also the pipe organ, where it is in the room, the reverb of the room, the audience. So it's kind of like a quantum experience. You change any of these things and by attending it, you change it. Mm. So it's arguable that there is very different overtones present in, and it, the piece is largely about melodies constructed from overtones. Um, I actually looked up how my bloody Valentine recorded the keyboards for Loveless in an attempt to understand how you could get that kind of sound. It didn't have any bearing on this, but that was a research wormhole I went through down the two months of preparation for the piece in 2018. So if you're not focused on producing, you know, closely mic'd sounds which have very clear um, fundamentals and then produce the overtones, then you're going to get a lot, it's a lot more numinous. It moves in a different way. Mm. What the microphone hears and what the audience hears and what the performer hears are all very different things as well. So I think that there's a number of differences between the two pieces and no, I'm not going to release every version. <laughs> I thought that it was an interesting sort of case study of like, here are the differences between these two. Absolutely. The piece sounds different. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully that bears out for a listener. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like a, a conceptual unraveling after that point, isn't it? The listener knows then that any subsequent version will be different. So you know, yeah, and you've if, made the point. Yeah. And if there's more performances in the future, which I hope there to be, then people will go, oh, I recognize that this is neither of those performances, that this is a third thing, but I recognize the form of the piece, you know, so that there's yes. the form and then there's the content that the score isn't explicitly written down, but I roughly know the notes to play, but it's going to be about a producing different sound pressures to achieve a certain outcome within a given duration so that the each part goes for a certain period of time and i'm trying to achieve a certain density of sound pressure that produces certain overtones within that time well this set is amazing i've been really enjoying it i haven't had loads of time with it but i can't wait to dig in more robert so people should definitely check it out i don't know whether or not it will be available to pre-order by the time this goes out i think this yeah. comes out early no, absolutely September. okay yeah excellent. the pre-orders begin from um early august and Great. there'll only be 300 copies so i'm fairly keen to get them out to homes and out of my home <laughs> Cool. Okay, great. So your three important records. So one question I like to ask at this point is about how you thought about the term important when coming up with your list. So there was, was there a particular framing? <laughs> um, oh God. Like I've worked in record shops over the years. I've worked for music magazines. Um, as will come up later when I t finally turned 18 and stopped looking like a child and had to be led into <laughs> venues, couldn't be bounced anymore. Um, I think I saw more than 60 bands in the first summer um, in Sydney. So wow. things that were important, I mean, like I've been playing music for 40 years now. 
Yeah, music music itself has been very important to me for a long time. It's probably the only continuous aspect of my life, which has had a lot of different changes. But um, not even formative or not even the best albums necessarily from mm-hmm. these artists, but that each of them are interesting because I have I had no idea how they were made when I encountered them. And I was reflecting on this last night that there is a real discipline to each of these albums. Mm. Um, The way they each hit you in completely different ways. Um, They're very focused. Um, So I guess I've learned a lot from that. I'm a little less fluffy now, a little (laughs) bit more focused myself, but um, like I could have chosen any, like, you know, an album by helmet, for example, um, I guess it's also that, like, you know, a number of their albums are really good. Meantime's amazing. The mm. B-side of Strapped On is great, but the production is really, like, very round on the top end and doesn't necessarily do the album justice in the way that it could. I could have chosen lots of albums, but um, these ones felt significant in a way and that I probably put a lot of effort into trying to understand what they were or they turned up at a time when um, it showed sometimes you encounter art that gives you permission to do things like you, you hear something or you see something and you go, wow, you're allowed to do that. Yes. You know, like this is, this is acceptable. Yeah. So, um, or, you know, someone got away with it. It's like, okay, it's, it's on. (laughs) So, um, that within the field of human endeavor, that this is an acceptable activity. And, um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't encourage innovation in and of itself, but sometimes you feel like you're moving without a map. Mm-hmm. And occasionally things turn up and you go like, what's beyond here is completely except, you know, go for it. Yeah. Have, have at it, as they say. In <laughs> so, um, yeah, for better or worse, I chose um, What by Folk Rob, um, In Case You Didn't Feel Like Showing Up by Ministry, a live album from 1989, I think it was, and um, The Grand Good Knoll by Naked City. They, some of them have produced better albums before or since, but that they were all significant or important to me in different ways. And I am aware that it's a total sausage fest. <laughs> um, mm. And those that know me personally know that I'm not necessarily the most masculine person in the world. But, yeah, I appreciated what they held. Um, I was thinking of including Eliana Radig's Kume in there. Um, I have a great story for how I encountered that. It was very significant. But um, there was a period when last year after the Sydney Festival performance when all I could handle listening to was what. Um, Mm. And that album is very interesting because it sounds different every time I've played it. It sounds different quietly to loud. It sounds different on every single system. And I think that in itself was quite a door opener. And I still have no idea how he made it. Right. But, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I guess a lot of people also wouldn't realise that it's not metal per se, but um, I was into a lot of very heavy music, which I guess explains the slightly physical obsession I have with sound. So for better or for worse, let's plough on with these three. <laughs> so which one do you want to have at first? We've started talking about Folk Robert. Do you want to start there or, or is there an order that you have in mind which we'll makes the most sense? Um, we'll talk about the Grand Grignol first. Okay, great. So why is this album important to you? 
someone gave it to me. So I was trying to work out. So I had to have been 18 um, because I was at a gig, um, a venue that I went to quite frequently, Vic on the Park, which I think is still going in Sydney. Um, they used to have afternoons there where they'd have seven death metal bands play in a row. And even if you were really hanging out for the seventh one um, by about number four or five, <laughs> it's like you're just trapped in a bull ring. It's like men walking around going, ooh. And um, it smells like a combination of smelly boys and girls' shampoo because all the boys have washed their hair. It was like a Melbourne <laughs> Angel gig. It smelled like a girl's bathroom. It was hilarious. All these men thrashing their hair around. But they had a lot of indie rock stuff. Yeah, so like a lot of unusual music. Um, over the years, I'd seen a wide range of music there, but like um, I was hanging out in the inner city in Sydney a lot more. I grew up in the suburbs in Sydney, very, very boring. John Howard, the former prime minister, was our local member, got voted in two weeks after I was born. I come from a very conservative area. So there wasn't a real roadmap for I didn't have an older brother that was like, hey, listen to this. So I would discover things somehow, largely from record stores because this was still um, the early 90s, I think, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. And um, I would find music from record stores and also by going out to see as much music as possible and maybe I'd make a connection to something else. But um, someone who I'd become friendly with, she said, here, I think you should listen to these. And, you know, CDs in Australia were expensive. They were probably like $35 each because they were Japanese imports even back then. So it's like, oh, someone's entrusting me with music that I don't, you know, you didn't have a mobile phone. You didn't have an email address for them. I wasn't sure where she lived. It was basically like, you'll need to bring it back to me at another gig. (laughs) So um, there was a nice sort of nominal community around. Like I was also found it very hard to talk to people I didn't know. So I got to know her. She was an interesting person. She ended up photographing Primus when I interviewed them when I was 19. So um, that was interesting. Yeah, that was, that was pretty bizarre. Like a band from overseas came to Australia. So (laughs) she gave me this and I'd previously enjoyed the first Mr. Bungle album. Um, I was obliquely aware of John Zorn, but I didn't really know that much. And this album, um, it's kind of like, people go looking for the answers or they look for some unifying thing that ties a whole bunch of things together. And then when they find the answer, they can like, you know, they've, they've encountered all these questions. This is like being given the answer in a certain way mm-hmm. straight up. And then you find all the questions that it answers. So Fred Frith, Bill Frizzell, first time Fred Frith has played bass, apparently Joey Barron, Wayne Horvitz, um, Yamatsuka I, and um, a few other people perform on this album. From there, you can go into New York 80s avant-garde and improvised music. You can go down a country music wormhole if you follow um, Bill Frizzell. You can go through um, English experimental music if you go into Henry Cow following Fred Frith and a whole bunch of other possibilities. Joey Barron is exemplary in every situation I've ever heard him play drums. Mm-hmm. Um, the Boredoms, if you go down Yamatsuka yeah. Ice discography, um, which, yeah, they toured Australia. I was very excited to see them. I totally understood what the word psychedelic meant after that. <laughs> Again, another kind of numinous concept, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what that is. <laughs> yeah. It was, they had like a huge rotating um, slide projector at the back. So, like, you know, like a massive lava lamp of color. Um, so that made a lot of sense. But um, literally, this 
this album, like the first Naked City album is quite good, but this one is astonishing. So the first track goes for 20 minutes, the next eight tracks go for 20 minutes, and the last 31 tracks go for 20 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a bit of a statement. Yeah. Um, and these guys clearly know what they're doing. Like there's areas which are so loose but so finesse and so tight that um, there's no there's no mistakes in there. It's very impressive. The opening 20-minute piece um, manages to cover a whole bunch of different influences without being pastiche hmm. um, and fluidly moves from, like, blast beats to, like, sort of a music concrete kind of concrete uh, minimalist, spooky ambience in a way like it effortlessly moves between Jean and it follows that Carl Stalling approach of having the wood block you know the poles tying everything together so yeah. he was also the producer on the Carl Stalling project and I grew up I really enjoyed the background animation by Tex Avery and the Carl Stalling and later Fritz Freeling music on the Looney Tunes so I'd also been listening to a lot of Carcass, Sepultura. Um, I enjoy Napalm Death, but not a major fan. Um, Godflesh, and then also um, a lot of jazz, a lot of trad jazz, big band sort of stuff, um, noise music, pop music. Like I'd been going out to see a really wide variety of music and then also a lot of classical music like Scriabin, Bruckner, you know, Messian. And the, the second eight-second section of pieces include three Scriabin covers, um, a Debussy and MSAN piece. And um, I have never heard a better version of the um, Floating Cathedral by Debussy that's on this version. It's It just floors me every time. It is elegaic and majestic at the same time. Is this a record that you still listen to now? Yes, sometimes. So they released The Torture Garden subsequently, which is all the short pieces. Um, and... Funny Games by um, Haneke, Michael Haneke, yes. was it? Yes, that's right. I was excited in the opening <laughs> <laughs> minute of the film when they played two Naked City pieces, and I'm like, yes, go. right, you have, my <laughs> yes, you have my full attention now. And yeah. that film is brutal. <laughs> like the original version, not the remake with Tim Roth, I think it was, but the original version is just like wrong. Yeah. Like, and the ambience it's so tense but it's also so precise at the same time so i guess that this naked city thing is similar like the way they rip through these songs like why play a great riff twice or four times when you can do it once and get on to the next one <laughs> yeah so um and great track titles like perfume of a critics burning flesh and jazz snob eat shit um so <laughs> yeah i would still put that on sometimes i haven't listened to the first track a lot of times but um the scriab and debussy and messian pieces and the ives piece i would still put on and listen to as enjoyable music mm. so um it's shaped yeah i was like how is this done and they never toured australia but when i saw a video of it i'm like right they did this all live it's not cut together from tape so um, right yeah 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 and like how it's basically like a massive fader kind of thing like people fading themselves in and out and that they're following this click all the way through so speed freaks has 28 changes i think in about 40 something seconds mm. or maybe 30 something seconds and they just rip through this piece but you listen to it and the entire thing works off a click track the same as the carl stalling stuff 
So right. he would write each section, not frame by frame, but he would find a pulse that unified the whole thing and would sometimes ask for a few extra feet of animation to be done so he could finish a cadence. And he would right. work with the Warner Brothers catalogue and quote like the lady in red when Bugs Bunny is in drag, that's quoting a Warner Brothers track, I believe, I think. So there's this encyclopedic knowledge of multiple genres to create a new genre and really expansive understanding of music. So I guess as a late teenager who'd given up playing as many notes as quickly as possible, you know, after all the hair metal sort of stuff of the 80s, <laughs> then, um, yeah, like this combination of sort of industrial and um, I've been listening to a lot of Strategies Against Architecture too by Unstutz and Denobarton as well, and that's really in there. Like, But it is a very 80s kind of album in a way. I think it was 89 or maybe 1990 that it was released. I did end up buying my own copy and returned Marie her copy. <laughs> nice. Um, but I was just impressed that like someone who for all intent and purpose I had no direct social connection to was lending me something that was clearly of significance to her. And um, it did end up opening a lot of doors. So, um, yeah, it, it was an important album to me because it combined a lot of things. And they're all exceptional musicians who can play regular music or whatever kind of music they want very well. It's something that I would never try to pull off myself, but it connects a lot of dots, like yeah. so many. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned there about the pulse driving things. I think one question that I wanted to put to you as someone who's listened to this a lot is it's one thing to mash together a load of stuff. I mean, I've seen them talk about the fact that they were listening to Ornette, they were listening to then Slayer, then Stravinsky, and this was a means of assimilating that holistic listening into something. But that's all good and well, but how do you do oh, that? Oh, yeah, the on and not it sounds yes, like a the Ornette covers mess. album is amazing, <laughs> right? Yeah, oh, did, did they do an Ornette covers album? Yes, they did um, do a covers album. It was Tim Byrne in the left or the right channel and John Zorn in the other channel. Um, Mark Dresner, I think, playing bass and um, Joey Barron and Mick Harris both playing drums simultaneously. Wow. Oh, cool. It sounds like a cannonball full of musicians being shot at the staircase <laughs> and coming down really fast. <laughs> But they play the head note perfect. It's unbelievable. And then the extemporization, the development is like out of control. And then they come back on the head like mm. Spy versus Spy. It's fantastic. Again, something I'd encountered around the same period. Um, so, yeah, I ended up hoovering up a bunch of John Zorn stuff around then and then haven't really listened to much in the last 15 years. That album in particular is probably the best that I've heard in terms of consistency from all of those musicians. It's very precise. And, yeah, it doesn't just move through at all, like a um, bit of this, bit of that. Mm -hmm. They very clearly know what they're doing. The fact that it's all written down as well, I'm like, oh, wow, that's a lot of writing. But, that, yeah, it's a pulse and that there is sort of like, you know, you can do the same sort of thing with overtones, have something that moves with a consistent phase through a piece. Um, I guess there's something similar about Eliana Radig's Kume or the Grubbs Watt, that the way the overtones evolve, it's just happening on a far more geological timescale than the, you know, a couple of beats per second or beats per minute.
Great. Well, let's go to your second important record now, Robert. Which one do you want to talk about now? Ministries, in case you felt like turning up. <laughs> Lovely. So, yeah, why did this one make the list? It's an assault. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I found out I've gone down significant research wormholes of this period over the years. So I was really, I enjoyed Lard, um, which is Jello Biafra with Paul Barker, William Reflin, I think. And no, no, yes, Bill Reflin and... Um, Al Jorgensen. Um, it was recorded around the same period, it turns out, in London with um, Adrian Sherwood in the building as huh. um, the Land of Rape and Honey. So there was this point when they went from being a sort of gothic dark wave band, like Twitch, that sort of era, and then they suddenly got really heavy and hard and a lot faster and incorporated machines in a different way. Apparently, they owned a Fairlight synthesizer. Um, they'd gotten a massive... So there's the Wax Tracks documentary I highly recommend. Explains a lot about this whole period and their involvement with it. Um, but during this period in London, um, they had the Fairlight. They didn't know how to access the second page, apparently. So they would have loops that would go for 8 or 16 bars and not change. So there's this real monothematic focus you know like total yeah. boys music in a way um and they also mr mckay from um fugazi was in the building at the same time so they recorded palehead and apparently the phrase that kept coming up was bulk record so they were sleeping across the road if they were sleeping at all recording a lot and the material for land and rape and honey um lard and palehead all came out of the same sessions wow. and yeah so then suddenly like there's this huge so i found a connection this morning between um paul barker and uh, australian band models that did a bunch of very big singles i think in the 80s and also dean mentor who was went on to become guitarist for faith no more so somehow al jorgensen and paul barker found themselves at the center of so many things they were just very active and the chicago wax tracks label is part of that so um again a whole catalog that i have realized retrospectively became quite important because a lot of it turned up in sydney through various record shops but in case you didn't feel like turning up is the live recording and i've since found out that there's a lot of overdubs but um, the video, like not a Blues Brothers fan, but this whole idea of building the cage between the audience and the um, band, mm. they start and they just go. There is minimal chatter between songs, even though it's from, some of them are from different performances. But they are just like a well-oiled machine. And one of my favourite um, rock and roll facts is the second drummer, Bill Rafflin, went on to become the drummer for R.E.M. Yeah. So the chicago smallness so it's just like <laughs> all these really strange things going on but like two drummers three or four guitarists one or two sample players um at least one bass player and they just like go and also the um fix documentary about ministry is hilarious as, as it is wrong so much drugs so much bad behavior yeah when things yes when things go bad when bad things attack the 1995 tour um i saw them perform on that tour in australia and at the big day out a couple of ten thousand people or more um it was a total assault and again drawing back into this physicality of music like there's a huge frequency distribution a lot of bass um 
a lot of everything and it's very driven mm. so there's a couple of tracks on this live album that don't 100 do it for me but someone explained to me talking to my wife she was saying well you know it gets it gives the audience a break between you know everything coming at breakneck speed so it's right. not like going to see seven grindcore bands in a row where you just feel tired at the end there's some slower bits yeah but um they just open i think what's it with the missing the missing yeah and, and it's like we're not taking any prisoners we're not here to mess around and it just sounds again like completely monolithic it's a huge sound and then the audience is going absolutely nut bar <laughs> yeah um the other record actually you mentioned to me by ministry which i think was in the mix for this was psalm 69 yes um, again politically very important like 1991 yeah. gulf war so much stuff going on and seeing that live was just like oh my lord <laughs> it was yeah quite a spectacle and again very well oiled machine at that stage that they were no longer a dance band that they were very much like an industrial metal band but without collapsing into the kitsch of industrial or metal yeah so, and great riffs yeah like that's... really catchy riffs I have no idea how they recorded that album. It is such a big sound. And the story of how it was made and how they wouldn't let the Warner people listen to it and they just baited them endlessly and would spend... <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah. It's like Kubrick and 2001. Like, nope, you don't get to see it till it's done. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it's, you know, it's interesting. It's like the story of Van Halen getting paid a million dollars to do the um, US festival in 1984 by people who went on to become big with Apple computers and all that sort of stuff. Um, but of that million dollars, they spent 800,000 on backline. And so that wall of amps thing, that's, <laughs> that's where that came from. So it's like <laughs> this absolute sense of hyperbole. Yeah. Um, and not in the fast and the furious, which is like hyperbolics. It's like, like really that you're pushing the limits of what is possible, but it's still possible. So yeah those sort of albums like they were massive sounding and that they ended up being quite popular in the mainstream as well so um yeah i but in case you felt like turning up it's just like it's unrelenting whereas psalm 69 it's got a bunch of different gears on it but yeah the the video i think is also what makes it with in case you didn't fight you know i think i had a copy on vhs back in the day and i encountered that when i was working at hmv I think in, again, 91, so they were getting rid of, I could get cheap CDs and they were getting rid of a lot of vinyl then because apparently vinyl was going to die as a medium. <laughs> Fancy that. So, yeah, it was part of discovering a whole bunch of great stuff and I guess that there was some good stuff being imported into Australia and keeping in mind that there was really only the seven major record companies in Australia, which is now just three and some imports. So there wasn't the huge range of independent music available that you get in, you know, Europe and America. Like there was a lot of very active Australian independent labels and it's not to discount that at all. And like, you know, Waterfront Records and Phantom Records and Red Eye and all those kind of la um, labels and shops were doing amazing jobs of presenting new music very well. So you could go in and find stuff and walk away with something new. But it, it, Australia on the whole and particularly suburban Australia was very mainstream. So... If you didn't hear it on the radio, you didn't see it in person and you didn't find it in a record shop, unless someone told you about it, it was hard to kind of dig up new stuff. The internet wasn't a thing back then. You know, you could order tapes, but you needed to know where to order them. Yeah. I guess that's 
why, like, when you mentioned that that girl gave you the Naked City record, it's so exciting to bond with someone over music when it's that difficult to come across, right? It's almost... Uh, if, if if she's wired anything like I am, you're kind of doing yourself a favour by giving someone else the opportunity to have that experience and feel connected to another listener instead of just bursting out of your own head because you're so excited about it. Yeah, But no way to put that energy, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like giving someone a seed packet knowing that there'll be that many more plants the next week yeah, rather yeah. than just you're the... <laughs> It's not bre- like it's a it's opening gates rather than gatekeeping, and I Absolutely. guess that that's exciting. Yes, and you know, working for some of the street press magazines in the nineties as well, seeing people's excitement and also the gig guide and like the different um, gig listings and like getting the word out about new bands or engaging with that process was quite exciting. But also seeing how it functioned within the corporate music industry, so that there's the excitement, but also the jaded like right. So this is the line. So on. This ministry record. So you mentioned that these records showed you what was possible in some fashion. I yeah. think you maybe have covered it with this ministry one that it may be just the sheer assault of it. What was it about the ministry record that said, ah, okay, now you can you can do this. This is a legit way to go. The way it combined samples. I mean, like... Mm. God, between the Butthole Surfers, them, and a couple of other bands, um, I'd practically seen Blue Velvet before I'd seen Blue Velvet. (laughs) Um, Like a whole bunch of those, like, you know, still seeing movies where some of those samples turn up. But, like, sure, people have been doing samples and music and, uh, you know, I'd gone to see a lot of grind and death metal bands and that sort of stuff. But, like, there's also a lot of space in the music, like Thieves live when I saw them, so I saw them two nights in a row in 95. They were probably, I think they were about 140 decibels. I was sitting upstairs at Selena's and had my fingers in my ears because I was about, you know, 10 metres away from the front stack of the venue, 1,000-person venue. And when I took my fingers out, I felt myself being blown back. Um, it was... Right. So we were watching the mosh downstairs. They had a strobe on during Thieves. There was literally people flying across the top of the mosh. <laughs> I was just completely looking at my friend going, what is going on? <laughs> like it was a different gig where I saw someone stage dive off the second floor, but like people were up for it. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. So it was like there was some pretty unhinged behaviour going on then. Um, and it was also super hot. Like I think I saw Soundgarden there the previous year and it was raining from the roof. It was so hot in there. Like you couldn't see in the mirrors oh, wow. in the bathrooms. It was so full of steam. So like Sydney summer's got pretty hot, but like someone surfing across the top of the crowd during <laughs> Thieves and they're playing it like, you know, millisecond precise and then you see someone and then when the strobe comes on every flash of the strobe they're meters away from they were seconds ago there's (laughs) multiple people flying around and yeah it was just like the idea that the spectacle was everyone engaging with the spectacle Mm -hmm. that there was no one place to look and then you've got like seven or nine different people on stage playing and it's just sort of like very clearly in control that they were just like riding the beast um (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was just impressive. So, yeah, I guess the permission was sort of like the different densities 
of music, different ways of constructing melodies, different ways of building something that can be intimate or like small or monolithic second to second and to make something big without it necessarily being bombastic. You know, trying to avoid bombast, I think, is quite a good thing and for a lot of things that I enjoy because a lot of things can collapse into that sort of, you know, overexpression very easily. So it kind of kept a check of itself. But I guess the precision with which it was crafted, um, yeah, and there's some very funny moments in there as well. Hmm. So at the end of Stigmata, fuck me, fuck you, fuck everyone, (laughs) fuck the church, just like just goes off on one so um yeah it's it's got it's got a little bit of everything for someone or a little bit of something for everyone Robert, let's go to your final important record then. So, what? Fog Rob, what? What? Tell me about how this one made it into this three album list. I think I encountered it for the first time. Lasse Mahog from Norway had posted it on Twitter. Huh. And um, I'm like, what? What's that? I haven't heard it. Put it on. So, I grew up playing Hammond. We had a Hammond organ in the house and it sounds like a tone generator, but it sounds like a Hammond. It's kind of got that richness that you get with the Leslie when it's carefully controlled. The Leslie's a rotating speaker on the side or in a separate cabinet to the Hammond. And with the Hammond, you can, through the drawbars, you can control the overtones. It's very similar to a pipe organ. So I came to realize my fascination with overtones had actually been linked to what I've been doing as a child. Hmm. So I'd always, you know, I discovered Jimmy Smith quite late in the day, but like that big kind of expert use of the Hammond that you can build very nice, big, fat textures by having the drawbars not all the way out, but most of the way out. And it's based on using the flutes for the um, pipe organ. But um, the way the piece sort of like old tools how they'll have a knurling effect on them like a sort of a diagonal diamond shaped cross hatching it's a particular machine effect that's um done on metal the way the tone unfurls in the opening minutes of what is kind of like this knurled effect Mm. like the longer it goes, the more you're noticing that it's not actually just one note, that there is a lot going on with it. And if you have a window open, then you start to hear the air, the phasing effect moves the air in and out. So like years ago, I got obsessed with this phasing effect to, and I was like, what's that? And then now I'm like pretty much like, let's do a whole album with just that. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of bass, lots of really low bass. And so it's just like... Hopefully it'll work in some regard rather than just being something which is a little bit too much of one thing. But um, (laughs) I've played what super quiet. I've played it blisteringly loud in a white room with the sun 
burning into it so we had to have sunglasses on um and it sounded like guitar feedback coming off the walls it was crazy we couldn't even work out where the sound was coming from or what it was anymore it assumed completely different dimensions and i guess that that's the thing with all of these albums they scale well they sound good quietly and they sound phenomenal up loud but they sound different yes yeah so this is sort of working with like filaments of sound rather than blocks of sound and the way the piece unfurls over the 75 minutes, I think it is, mm-hmm. there's sort of two or three main sections to it. There's pulses in there. Like I don't even understand synthesizers very well. Like I had some crappy Yamaha ones in the 80s and some Roland ones um, and a Korg, but I don't know much about synths really. So I don't really use, I use simple first principle stuff like tone generators just for like the way they affect physics. But clearly... Mr. Rub has some understanding about the device that he's using that he's managing <laughs> to milk a lot out of something. So it sounds like pulses, but it might just be beating frequencies. And the more I listen to it, the less I understand about it. Or I have hints on like, maybe he's doing this at this point. So yeah, um, it's also very calming. Like, you know, it's got that very minimal close focus like a lot of Richard Chartier's early work does and then it sort of expands out into there and it's both calming and then you can deal with the unsettlingness as it sets in (laughs) yeah so I still listen to it a lot it's a favorite for the car oh really oh interesting oh yeah it's total road trip material because then I guess as well you're getting engine noise nudging into certain frequencies and stuff too. We have a three-cylinder, so it's very quiet. It's oh, less than very nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know we've 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 uh, isolated the engine. Got a lot of acoustic material going on in the vehicle. When I drive, I drive Toyotas. No, it's um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not driving a Land Cruiser anymore. It's not phenomenally loud, but like if you have the windows open a crack, and you're not driving too fast, then this album sounds incredible. Hmm. What do you know about folk? Rav, I tried to look up some stuff. I couldn't find much. Yeah, have listened to bits and pieces of some of his other pieces. He doesn't seem to have done a lot of material like this. Um, I feel a bit like I knew this interview was coming and I didn't prepare on this front. But the little bits that I've listened to didn't, like, they don't have this same singular focus that this does. Like, I heard some brass pieces, I think, maybe an organ piece. I'm not sure. I see. I guess that's the other thing, like important albums rather than important songs, like an album being a collection or a series of things put together that convey a certain mood, like a photo album. So I chose this as an album because, you know, there's some Ligeti pieces that completely melt my head, um, some Scriabin as well. But um, I, there's not an album that I could pick. And I felt like that these kind of sit adjacent to all of the interests that I have rather than this is the thing that I like. Interesting you mentioned Ligeti actually. I think Fog Rob was taught by Ligeti. That's the one bit of no. info that I managed to pick up. I hope that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Right. I only just recently discovered that Max Planck was a student of Helmholtz. So it's like, <laughs> oh, that makes a great deal of sense as well. So, um, yeah, so Ligeti's Harmony Studies number one for pipe organ. There's one particular version. It's on YouTube. It's oh, I can't pronounce the guy's name properly, but um, amazing. Mm. Just I encountered it after I was getting back into pipe organ after a significant 
break away from it and it does everything that you'd want to achieve in this completely etheric way. a tangent there i'm intrigued when you came back into pipe organ after some time away what were the factors that you can point to that dictate why that happened what brought you back in again i've got really frustrated with equal temperament and that everything just ended up sounding like different versions of the same thing like i know that there's lots of different styles of music that you can play at different ways but um organ tends to have a certain yeah, Jimmy Smith plays it differently, Booker T, but, um, it, you know, church music tends to have like this big, heavy lumbering sense to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got the bass. So I guess that's informed how I play a lot. You've got the bass with your feet, chords with the left hand, it's not piano, and then something else with the right hand. So um, I was more interested in harmonics, the notes between the notes. Mm-hmm. And at that age... I was just like, these lessons aren't going anywhere. I think I'd reached teacher's grade and I'm like, what would I want to teach about this? And then got interested in music, had samplers, had other keyboards, could do different things with music, didn't really, did radio for years. And then after doing all this stuff with like turntables and overtones and architectural stuff, I played organ again for a bit and was playing with the stops more and then realized that like, okay, yes, this is how I can control the sound and produce what I want. Um, you know, it's not a new idea by any means like Keith Jarrett, I'm not a huge fan, but on spheres, he does this technique, but it's all done live. Same with Clamato. Like I tend to record individual strands, one thing at a time, not knowing how it's going to combine into the end and it becomes a gestalt. So like the intention imbued into each part of the recording hopefully informs that end product. It's like if you were to design all the fittings for your house and then design the house, like it's going to be a house that fits the fittings. Right. Yeah, exactly. So like like Cabussier's approach or Wittgenstein. So, you know, not that I know that much about Wittgenstein's house, but yeah, so you're, you're, you're aware that there's parts, but you're also focused on a whole. So in England and also in Cornwall was able to access a lot of old pipe organs and um, yeah. So then started recording on them and was like, this is what I'm after. This is, it's got a similar kind of character to the other material that I've been making and also holding down multiple notes. You know, I was still obsessed with cluster chords as a kid, but now like multiple bass notes, then you get rhythms and it becomes about how that organ's tuned Mm. and then the beating frequencies between the notes, which is different for each organ. So I guess also you're going to have regional variations for bronze lands because each slight difference in beating frequencies, which is also going to be borne out by the changes in the weather it's going to give it a slightly different character each time. So it was the Ligeti's Harmony Studies number one. When I actually saw the score for it, I realised that they're venting the pipe organ. So then not enough air can get in. And the more notes you play, the less sound comes out. I kind of took the inverse 
approach for bronze lands i found that when i was working with this non even temperament stuff from the tracker action organs it didn't really matter which note i chose they were all terrible so <laughs> and i didn't want it to be arbitrary and i was after something quite specific and then i realized that the more notes i played the more overtones there were and the more beating frequencies so if i change notes within those notes and also pedal noting you know i'm changing the inversions of the chords it's producing more overtones and then the two halves sort of finally came together so yeah that you're going to get slightly different chord i'm playing like 12 note chords um manually not holding things down like sometimes one finger's playing more than one note and that the density of this huge non-amorphous mass of un, you know undulating beating frequencies when you change certain notes within that constellation you're creating melodies from the notes changing slowly but you're also changing how different notes relate to each other to produce additional overtones so yeah i spent a lot of time in some fin bars working on that and then sort of like a realization is like ah okay so this is something i feel like not many people are doing this feels something unique to me like i don't want to make music that other people are making because they're already doing it better than i am right right for sure so why why reinvent that wheel so for better or worse i felt like that that was an interesting direction to go in and then sirene was like layering up similar ideas like this but it wasn't tied to any specific tuning system and i could make quiet sounds very loud so you're kind of getting right inside the acoustic production of sound via the movement of air from a pipe you know mm. you're hearing all the elements of that so um yeah and i also believe it or not um I got very self-conscious playing in front of people. So it had been, I'm not going to say how long, but um, a significant period of time since I'd last performed in front of an audience when right. I did the performance in 2018. So I had to deal with certain things about myself. <laughs> so, right, yeah. Um, it helped that the audience couldn't see me because I was behind a whole bunch of stuff where the organ console is. Yes. But... Um, you know, I guess that our disciplines help us kind of engage with those parts of ourselves so then we can become less underconfident and maybe kind of just like present it as it is rather than needing to be overconfident, you know. It sounds like there's a lot that you could still dig into with pipe organs. You've mentioned so many possible variables and your journey up until this point. Do you think there is an yeah there's a new thing coming I'm i was gonna to say yeah yeah okay. nice. i'm particularly interested in structure like the piece clamata the way that the the six different modules fit together to create you know it's similar with bardo that you've got all these modules that come together to create a structure that um changes every time so it's the relationship between the different elements um, that I'm working on something a bit larger. And again, I guess once you've kind of plumbed the width and breadth of a technique or a possibility, then you can approach the structure more coherently. Yes. So um, starting work in the next year or over the next year on a new piece that will hopefully be enjoyable, interesting, worthwhile, but also engage with some unusual pipe organs and um, result in uh, performable work in the future. So I thought it was at least worth releasing Bronze Lands now, 
you know, who knows if we're not going to be allowed to hang out in groups and organs tend to be in very specific places. And for that piece, I also need a PA. So I need like a good deal of electricity and lights and all that sort of stuff. So trying to develop something new that can work in different contexts, but like at least bronze lands is out there now and I can, you know, I'd love to perform it some more. Mm-hmm. but um i also would like to work on this new stuff so there's a few new things in development and that's one of them so it's an idea that i've actually been kind of working on came up with about 15 years ago and i think i finally worked out how to do it so you know a year in the country has yielded some time to think about stuff on long walks around the bog <laughs> Great. which is not the toilet it's a large <laughs> anaerobic area of water upon um grass and similar plants one final question for you, Robert, which is you've mentioned with the folk rap record, for example, you've listened to it in loads of different contexts. I'm wondering if you have a particularly fond means of listening to records in a dedicated way. Like at the moment, is there somewhere you like to be or somewhere you like to go, a setup you like to use in order to conduct a full appreciation of a particular record? Um, as loud as possible on a massive sound system. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would do. I don't know. Like I was lucky to have done some work with uh, this big dub sound system, which is in the front of Beyond Enclosures and what we used in Cork. And um, the bass is phenomenal. It was built by hand, modelled on the Mungo sound system from the UK. Um, and music sounded great on it because I've been working on a lot of music over the last year. I haven't listened to a lot of music. I tend to enjoy it where I can. I haven't even been able to set the turntables up properly in this new house. But um, And listening to stuff on the Genelex here in the studio, it tends not to be a great deal of fun. And I mostly right. tend to listen to music in the car. We have a car now. But um, often I just work with silence. So... Um, Sometimes we've had a turntable set up in the house and it's just like some nice speakers and you can sort of jump around to it in different rooms. I guess with the folk rap thing, it is interesting because when one releases music, one lets it out into the world, you know, like releasing an animal, it's not going to necessarily come back and cook you dinner and <laughs> no, um, say, sure. thanks for all of that. <laughs> like it's, it's going to go out and live its own best life. Hashtag blessed. But um <laughs> When you release music, you like hope that people have a subwoofer so they can get these secret frequencies or the audio Easter eggs. And I guess that listening to what made me realize that there is kind of hope for releasing music because if it sounds different in every setting, you know that there's as many different audible variations as there are settings so that everyone's Mm going to hear it differently. And if someone digs into the music, that they'll get all of those rewards themselves. So, and I guess even modeling stuff for streaming so that it can sound decent on a phone or on laptop speakers is a challenge that there's still enough um, intention there and enough um, intelligence in what comes out. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways. I am really missing hearing music on a big like sound system um, in a big room and hearing was listening to something recently by Brendan Doherty um, from Berlin. He put a great EP out recently of some of the works that he's been doing with Meg Stewart. 
And um, one of the tracks, I was like, yep, this is the bass line that would be moving through the room. You know, like when <laughs> it's not just a bass line, it's something that would move backwards and forwards through the room very architecturally rather than just up and down. Like it's got a real spatial element to it. Mm. And I'm like, ah, I could imagine being in like a club and hearing this and it'd be like, yep, that it's something that makes you want to move as well. So I think that there's a lot of different contexts to hear music and it, it serves different social functions and it, it has different physical rewards in each context. What I enjoy, what I make are often quite different things as well. Well, Robert, let's end it there. Thank you so much. This has been awesome to talk through your three important records and your own music as well. So Cheers, it was crucial that we made this conversation work for <laughs> the technical the difficulty. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time, Jack. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.